The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you all in the name of Jesus Christ. Welcome to you here with me in the room and those with us in spirit online. Welcome in the name of Jesus And if you are a visitor this morning, if you're new to this church, uh, we just want to let you know that we are a people being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And if you want to get in touch with us, if you uh, want to connect with us somehow, we'd love for you to talk with our elders, find them outside the building afterwards, talk with us. Uh, We would love to connect with you. If you want to go to thesprings.cc slash contact, Send us an email. We would love to know more about you, to know how we can serve you and how we can get to know you and walk with you on your journey of faith. And I'm glad you're with us this morning. We're continuing our new sermon series in the book of Revelation called Citizens of a Different Kingdom. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name. And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the word of the Lord, and we ask that you would show us this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the truth of your gospel, and the truth of how we must live it out. We praise you, King Jesus, Lord of our life, Lord of heaven and earth, and I ask you for the gift of preaching this morning. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. A couple of years ago, I preached a sermon on Jesus and time. And in that sermon, I used an illustration from the French Revolution. It was the 18th century, and the revolutionaries had tried to reset the calendar. They had basically said, okay, this year's not 1792 anymore. It's year one again, and we're resetting everything and reconfiguring the calendar. And what I only alluded to in that sermon is that 
this whole project of the revolutionaries was about so much more than just time, than just the calendar. In fact, it was a much larger project about establishing a new state religion, what we would call a civic religion. And the way that they did this was not just with the calendar, but by suppressing the Catholic Church in France, as well as setting up their own kinds of religious emblems to the state in order to foster this loyalty to the nation of France. And so instead of altars in churches, they would make altars to the fatherland, and they would engrave in stone the French constitution there to be venerated as a kind of object of worship. Maybe some of you have been talking about, hearing about, watching Hamilton this summer. Uh, at one point, Thomas Jefferson sings about you know, helping Lafayette draft an address. He's talking about the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And this was actually declared in France as the, the national catechism, another religious-sounding word. And that was also engraved on stone at these altars where people would go to worship and really give their loyalty to the Republic of France. And so they did this in all sorts of different ways. They had new civic rites of baptism, civic funerals. And while most of these measures didn't last very long, they didn't really work, it's illustrative of the desire that states have to have this kind of religious authority in our lives. It's il illustrative of how much states desire to be that sole, unifying, central allegiance in our lives. And in our modern Western world, which actually springs from the revolutions in France and America, in our world, we talk a lot about separation of church and state. And I think one of the truths that gets lost when we talk about separation of church and state is that oftentimes the state is tempted not simply to be separate from the church, but to be your church. Right? The state is oftentimes tempted not simply to be separate from the church, but to try to be your church, to try to be that central, unsurpassable, final authority in your life. And oddly enough, when the state does try to become our church, it's almost as if our political party tries to become our denomination. Right? But the state it, it is tempted to try not just to be separate from the church, but to try to be your church. And the amazing thing is that these Enlightenment figures in France and America, the revolutionaries, they were inspired in this direction of establishing a strong civic state religion. They were inspired in this direction by ancient Rome. The Roman Empire was where they looked for this inspiration because in the Roman Empire, in a sense, the state really was the church. It was the religion. The Roman Empire was, was built around this cult of the emperor, this worship of the pagan gods and yet also the empire itself. And this was sustained in the Roman Empire through something we call the imperial cult. 
imperial worship. And this was really kind of the religious glue that held the empire together. It was the way that the emperor communicated himself to the people and the way that they found their loyalty in the empire. And I say the word religious glue, but religion in that day wasn't really a separate thing from politics or economics. It was all of a piece together. And so the empire, kind of like in France, they tied everyone together and to the emperor with this sort of civic imperial cult, right? Through their inscriptions and their statues and their temples and their coins. Temples in that day, in fact, were not just religious, but they were public buildings. The sacrifices offered there were for the public good. And it's this imperial cult, this civic religion of Rome, that Revelation is at pains to critique. That Revelation calls out. So jumping back into our text this morning in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, John says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. So as Ben indicated last week, Revelation is not just an apocalypse, that's one of its genres, but it's also a letter. This was a circular letter meant to be sent to seven actual churches in the region of Asia. And Pergamum is one of those cities where there's a church receiving the letter of Revelation. And so Pergamum was a really important city. It was about 120,000 people. And it was the capital of Asia, as well as, perhaps more importantly, Pergamum was the religious capital of that region as well. There was an incredible thousand-foot-high Acropolis with pagan temples, a temple to Zeus. They had the first temple built to the emperor Caesar Augustus, who had passed away and was deified and worshipped. And so Pergamum was a very important place for this imperial cult. It was a very important place, and we think actually that the pagan temples up on the Acropolis, and specifically the temple to the emperor, is probably what Jesus, through John here, is calling Satan's throne. He says, where Antipas was killed, where Satan lives. So what does he mean by Satan's throne? What, and what do we mean when we talk about Satan? Well, By about the New Testament time, uh, the word Satan was kind of becoming this proper name, this personification, but it never lost its original meaning as a Hebrew word. The the Hebrew word Satan, or Satan, it it literally means accuser. It means someone who accuses. And that's how Satan operates, right? Satan is an accuser, a, a liar, a deceiver. And Satan is this force, this will of negating the good things of God in the world. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin as this turn towards nothingness. 
and that makes sense of Satan as taking the, the good life and existence of what God gives to the world and trying to distort it, trying to turn it, trying to turn it towards nothingness and death and negation. That's what Satan does. Satan doesn't have an existence independent in himself. He acts as this kind of parasitic force, this disease that feeds on the good things in the world. And so to us, it might sound a little dramatic to refer to you know, this cult of the emperor as satanic, as Satan's throne. But look at what's been happening in Pergamum. All right, people have already been asked to deny, to negate Jesus, and someone from among the church in Pergamum has already died, has already been martyred, Antipas, who Jesus says is his faithful witness. And so Jesus doesn't mince words about Rome here. He says, you've been negating my good work, right? You've been murdering and exploiting and subjugating and warring. So Jesus calls out this cult of the emperor that is not the devil incarnate, but perhaps the devil is using for his work. But, even as Jesus begins by praising the Christians in Pergamum, the other shoe's about to drop. He's also got a beef. He's also got a bone to pick with them. And so in in verses 14 and 15, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So there are false teachers in the church in Pergamum who are leading the people to fornication, whether that's literal sexual immorality or also a way of speaking about idolatry as it is throughout the Bible. And specifically here in Pergamum, eating food sacrificed to idols. And so this topic of idol food is an interesting one for the New Testament and for the ancient world because in the ancient world, if you wanted to eat meat, chances are it was probably going to come from something that had been sacrificed to a pagan god. Right? That was the way the meat market kind of worked in those days. The stuff that wasn't eaten at the temple, that kind of got passed around, and what wasn't eaten there went down to the market and was sold. And so this was an issue for Jews in the first century, an issue for Christians in the first century. And you might remember the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Romans. And where Paul kind of lands is that, you know, these, this food is sacrificed to a pagan god, but that pagan god doesn't even exist. So it's okay if you eat it as long as you don't start worshiping the idols And as long as you don't harm the tender conscience of another Christian. But John goes a different direction. Jesus, through John here in Revelation, seems to draw a harder line for the community in Pergamum. Because this is a hard line. This is difficult. In that day and age, if you weren't eating the food sacrificed to idols people in Pergamum would notice. 
People in those days didn't have the private lives that we think of. That kind of privacy was really just something that elite or wealthy people got. But regular folks, they didn't have the ability to kind of go sequester away in their homes like we've needed so much this year. Because they were so dense in population, especially in cities, and they didn't have the ability to cook in their residences. They didn't have uh, bathroom facilities. Those they had to go do outdoors. And so there were these festivals. They were just up in each other's lives a whole lot more. And if you weren't eating the food sacrificed to idols, people would notice. If you weren't at the festival of this imperial cult, your neighbors would notice. So we ask again, why, why draw this, this difficult line for the church in Pergamum? Why ask them to, you know, unnecessarily offend their neighbors in this way? Why ask them to kind of diminish their prospects and opportunities in this society? Well, remember what's been happening. Again, people have been called to deny Jesus. And one of them, probably directly related to that, Antipas, has been killed on this account. And so now some are teaching that, you know what? You can be a Christian and you don't have to be so distinct. You don't have to be so weird. You can just go with the flow of things. You don't have to stand out in any way. But Jesus has a harder calling. Jesus is calling the church in Pergamum to have a higher allegiance to him. Jesus is calling them to live up to their true citizenship, to live by their allegiance to him, even if it sets them apart in painful, even dangerous ways. And he says as much. In in verse 16, he says, Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. In 2014, the LA Times published an editorial called The Problem of Dual Citizenship. And this editorial argued that while America technically allows us to have dual citizenship, to be a citizen here and a citizen of a different state, they argued it's probably something that should be questioned and maybe even discouraged in favor of what the piece called undivided Americans. And in fact, they started the piece by quoting the oath that immigrants are required to say when they're becoming naturalized as a U.S. citizen. This is what they have to recite. They say, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Now, maybe some of us in this very room have said these words. 
There are many, many people who've been happy to come here and say these words. There have been many who still want to come here and would happily renounce allegiance to their other regime and be a U.S. citizen. Maybe our, uh, our very own resident Canadian, John Osborne, maybe one day he'll say these very words. But it is problematic, as the piece points out, because even as they take this oath, America still allows dual citizenship. And yet, for a Christian, it's problematic in a different way. right? Because even as it's true, when we say it in one sense, there's another sense in which for a Christian to take the oath isn't entirely true. Right? There is a prince. There is a sovereign to whom a Christian can never renounce or abjure a single ounce of fidelity or allegiance in favor of any earthly state. And so Christians have this this higher allegiance to someone who really is Lord of Not just heaven, but Lord of heaven and earth, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so as Christians, we do have this allegiance that precedes and follows any other allegiance that we have. Because God and his authority precedes and outweighs and reigns over any other nation. This is what we pledge in our baptism. Allegiance to the kingdom of God. And so, this is a series called Citizens of a Different Kingdom. And I think sometimes we imagine ourselves as kind of being dual citizens. We as Christians kind of think of ourselves in dual citizenship. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're also citizens of America, and we're citizens of the city of God, but also citizens of the city of man. And I've been wondering this week, though, what if we thought of ourselves not as dual citizens, but as resident aliens? What if we as Christians thought of ourselves and acted in ways that set us out not as dual citizens, but as resident aliens, as strangers in a foreign land committed to the good of our city, and yet always longing for and living by that allegiance to the kingdom of God? What would that witness look like? What would that look like for a Christian to live not as dual citizens, but as resident aliens? It would look different. We would have to be distinct. We might have to stand out. There would be food sacrificed to idols of which we could not partake. There would be organizations that we must link arms with or must resist. And if we are called to give that last full measure of devotion, we must give it only for the purposes of the kingdom of God in heaven. That is what Jesus calls the Christians in Pergamum to. That is what Jesus calls us to. 
here as we live as citizens of a different kingdom, following Jesus and then receiving as conquerors that hidden manna, that everlasting life with him, the bread of heaven's eternal city. That is what is on offer and promised. Church, may we hope for that kingdom. May we pray for its coming on earth as in heaven, and may we praise the Lord of heaven and earth who has revealed our true citizenship. Let's stand and praise Jesus this morning.